I'm Graham Smith. I'm the chair of the Society of Obstetrician and Gynecologists of Canada Academic Council, as well as the head of obstetrics and gynecology at Queen's University. We started the SOGC's Women's Health Podcast as a service to our members. We plan on delving into topics that impact women's health in Canada and around the world, and we'll be speaking with leading experts and people with specific interests in the clinical scenarios. Our guest today is Dr. Lisa Graves, and we'll be talking about cannabis use and women's health. Dr. Graves is a graduate of the University of Ottawa and did her family medicine residency and maternal child health training at McGill, where she took her first academic position. She returned to Ontario as the Associate Dean of Undergraduate Medical Education at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, and Dr. Graves is currently a professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Western Michigan's University's Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine, where she is also the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs. Lisa, welcome to the SOGC's Women's Health Podcast, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you, Graham, for giving me an opportunity to speak about uh, cannabis use in women's health. So cannabis and cannabinoids, through their actions on the endocannabinoid system and other biological systems, influence a wide range of physiological and psychological processes. In some instances, these actions might serve to benefit women's health and well-being, might be useful in managing symptoms associated with certain conditions. In other instances, the use of cannabis and cannabinoids can lead to harm and worsen health and well-being for women. Can you give us some background on what cannabis and cannabinoids are and how they cause the effects that they do? So cannabis itself actually is composed of and can consist of any one of up to 100 different cannabinoids. Um, the most common one that we actually talk about is THC, which uh, goes by the official name of Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol. Um, but we, again, more commonly refer to it as THC. It's probably the most well-known because it has significant uh, psychoactive properties. Um, and it acts on cannabinoid receptors to exert its effects. And of those receptors, the two most common ones are ones uh, that actually the CB1 uh, receptors that actually affect the, um, uh, that are actually based in the brain and are attributed to a lot of the psychoactive effects of cannabinoids, and the CB2, which again are primarily related into the immune system. The other cannabinoid that we hear a lot of discussion about, in addition to the THC, is cannabidiol or CBD, um, is um, again. And one that has increasing attention paid to it because of its capacity to potentially have some therapeutic effects. And again, this acts through a different set of receptors uh, in comparison to what THC and the CB1 and CB2 receptors do. Um, it acts through uh, indirectly through the endocannabinoid system and therefore has a, is thought to have less uh, psychoactive properties in comparison with THC. So a simpler way to think about cannabis is to think of the two major components that we discuss right now, the THC component and the CBD component. As you're aware, cannabis was legalized in Canada on October 17th in 2018. I think this was done without all the questions and concerns dealt with, specifically as it relates to pregnancy and, and the younger populations. Are there safety concerns related to cannabis use? Absolutely, there are safety concerns. Um, certainly, in um, the risks and the concerns are often um, framed uh, based on the type of product uh, being used as well as the method being used. 
So for instance, uh, the risk can be proportional to the amount of THC that's actually contained in the product with, again, the more THC within the product, the more potential risk there can be. We can see cannabis intoxication, um, which you know can affect uh, cognition and psychomotor abilities. We can see uh, can even see cannabis poisoning um, that has significant um, health risk because of the delay in onset that can happen um, when edibles are used. Um, edible products themselves can carry a greater risk of uh, over intoxication in comparison to cannabis products that are inhaled. We also need to think about the differences in cannabis use from the very occasional recreational user because we know that there is uh, the evidence is um, emerges that uh, frequent cannabis use daily cannabis use the use of cannabis with high uh, percentages of THC in it have been um, more linked with um, with certain concerns one of which is uh, psychotic disorders um, we also know longitudinally that um, Sometimes cannabis use in early adults has been associated with uh, late, with onset later on in life with depression and suicidality. Um, and certainly we also know that um, there is a continuum from recreational cannabis use to um, uh, uh, cannabis being used for, um, for medical uh, and therapeutic reasons, um, but then a certain percent uh, percentage of individuals who use cannabis will actually move to having a cannabis use disorder. Uh, and this in itself, uh, based on the sheer numbers of individuals using cannabis, can be an important component in the substance use disorder spectrum. At Queen's, we did a study where we had ethics approval to collect anonymized urine samples from women in labor in the months leading up to October 2018, and then repeated it a year later, really to get an idea of local prevalence of use, but also to see what impact legalization had. The data hasn't been published yet, but the prevalence was about 10% and didn't seem to change with legalization. The SOGC did an excellent information campaign about cannabis use and pregnancy, but one of the things it really identified was that there are many people who see cannabis as a natural herb. And so much inf- misinformation abounds on the internet. Why do people, and specifically women and pregnant women, use cannabis? So when you actually look at the literature, um, men and women use cannabis for different reasons. And certainly in some of the literature, we're seeing that women are often using cannabis for relaxation, for stress relief, and for um, improving sleep. We sometimes see a change in cannabis use throughout a woman's life cycle, um, with it changing from uh, the pattern of use um, in young adulthood to patterns of use as, as women age. Um, we do know that um, uh, although there has been a reduction in the um, stigma attached to using cannabis that's occurred with uh, legalization, uh, that women and girls still find that there is stigma attached to cannabis use, particularly amongst women. And that's why studies like your, the one that, you're, um, that you completed at Queen's will be important for us to understand uh, the actual amount of cannabis use that, that women are engaging in, in comparison to the amount of cannabis use that may be disclosed by women. We've always asked pregnant women about substance use, including cannabis, even before it was legalized. But I suspect women are much more likely to acknowledge that they use cannabis now that it's legal. Patients will often state that they use a certain number of grams a day or half a bong 
or some measurement, which I never know what that translates to. Is there an easy way of trying to quantify how much they're using? Should we be asking how many joints they're smoking a day? Though that doesn't take into account edibles. It's, it's really difficult to actually quantify the amount of, of actual cannabis that's being consumed. And again, you know, the size of even a joint can be highly variable from one person to the next. So unless someone is actually measuring their cannabis and weighing it, um, if, um, you know, it, it can be hard to actually come up with a good number. The pat- what we're actually looking for and probably better questions relate to pattern of use, um, whether the pattern of use is daily or, and multiple times per day, um, whether it's less frequently than that. And an important question to ask as well is, in addition to how cannabis is being consumed, because you're correct, there are differences between inhaled cannabis and edibles, but also the percentage of THC. The uh, strains of, of cannabis in Canada can have significant amounts of THC in them, with numbers ranging up to 12, 20, 25% uh, available. And that's probably a better measure uh, to understand the amount of cannabis being consumed and the potential health concerns uh, than actually um, asking people to detail the number of joints smoked per day. What should we be saying to patients when they identify that they use cannabis? So I think we need to um, we need to detail the um, the type of cannabis consumption. We need to be thinking about whether or not this is problematic cannabis use or whether or not this is non problematic cannabis use um, as as a first um, as a first a first way to start. We need to be making certain that uh, through screening we identify women for whom cannabis use disorder is likely or probable and making certain that we provide um, the appropriate screening, intervention, referral to treatment for women who are identified as having a use disorder. In terms of other approaches to cannabis, we need to be creating an environment where women feel comfortable disclosing that they are using cannabis. As we know from some studies, some women still feel a bit stigmatized in their cannabis use, despite the fact that it's been legalized. So we want to make certain that when having women who uh, disclose that they're using cannabis, that we understand that, you know, where they fit in on this uh, spectrum of use and whether or not we need to be um, uh, recommending and or or suggesting um, that a cannabis use disorder is likely or probable. I understand that polysubstance use can be a real issue. What else should we be aware of when caring for women who use cannabis? So one of the things that we should be aware of is in addition to um, the fact that cannabis use may be linked with the use of other substances, is that um, that trauma-informed care uh, should be an important consideration for caring for women who use cannabis. Trauma-informed care um, may be familiar to uh, many of us, but it's basically looking at understanding how past and present stressors and uh, traumatic events have shaped a woman's relationship and the way that she may disclose, talk, um, uh, negotiate with a um, um, with a healthcare provider. We know that there's an association with cannabis use and with increasing cannabis use with a history of trauma. I think it's important to remember here that what I'm talking about is not the recreational cannabis user, but a cannabis user whose use is more regular um, and less uh, occasional. Can you comment on some harm reduction strategies that care providers could use? 
Absolutely. So harm reduction strategies is really an evidence-based approach um, that's centered on what um, what women, what patients, what clients need uh, to actually reduce the amount of both uh, health and social harms that can be associated with dependence and substance use. And it doesn't necessarily require that people be abstinent from uh, using the substance in order to actually uh, be participating in harm reduction. So in the area of cannabis, it may be having discussions around decreasing and using a lower percentage of THC. It may be discussions around decreasing the amount that's used per day or per week. And it may be discussions about moving from uh, different modalities of delivery to other modalities of delivery that feel more manageable and safer. Um, it's the it's understanding that that abstinence is not the goal, but reducing the medical and social harm is actually the goal. And, to, and, and it involves our capacity to celebrate each of those gains as important steps towards being healthier. You mentioned earlier that cannabis acts on CBD receptors and that they are found in uh, reproductive tissues. Does cannabis have an effect on female reproduction? To be perfectly honest, we actually don't know an awful lot about this. It's one of the um, multiple challenges that exists in thinking about cannabis because we don't have a robust body of literature uh, to really help us sort these things out. There is very little little evidence that suggests um, that cannabis plays a role in sort of uh, human reproductive hormones. We know that cannabinoids act through the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. We know that it has um, in interactions with um, uh, with uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone, uh, and that it can result in decreases in luteinizing hormone and estrogen levels. So we know that 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 happens, and it appears that it should affect ovulation. But the clinical data on this is actually a bit conflicting, and we need a lot more research to really understand what the impact um, of cannabis is. There is some evidence that the effect on the endocannabinoid system, that's where the CBD um, component is particularly active, um, that it can affect fertility. So there are some suggestions that perhaps there, there may be risks to fertility for women, and particularly for women who may have had a pregnancy loss. But again, this needs a lot more investigation. There's no evidence that actually supports an impact, either positive or negative, uh, on exogenous cannabis, so cannabis that would be consumed, uh, on the effect of contraception, which is good news. But there is some data that actually suggests that male fertility can be affected by cannabis use. So the bottom line is particularly um, around issues related to family planning, fertility, um, documentation of cannabis use, um, as well as other aspects of substance use history can be an important component. There are lots of claims about the things that cannabis is helpful for, but I'm not sure of the evidence underlying these. Can you tell us about some of the chatter you hear about cannabis and women's health in general and your thoughts on this? Absolutely. There's Again, this is all affected by a real lack of, of good, solid evidence about the impact of cannabis. We know that women who are perimenopausal um, and who consume cannabis do believe it helps with sleep and irritability, depression, hot flashes, muscle and joint pain. Um, but there's actually no scientific evidence right now to really support this. We again know that cannabis can be helpful with sleep. 
and is often used by individuals trying to improve their sleep. And while THC can decrease sleep latency, it actually cannot may impair sleep quality. And although you know synthetic cannabinoids have been shown to have some benefits for sleep, um, including sleep apnea and nightmares, um, particularly those associated with PTSD, chronic cannabis use results in, in habituation. So in fact, the benefits that may be achieved initially with sleep are not necessarily going to be long-lasting. So it's really hard to sort out some of these things. There's some interesting preliminary literature that suggests that the um, that cannabis may, uh, through blocking CB1 and CB2, those THC-related receptors, might actually decrease bone loss and inhibit osteoclast activities. And maybe this could actually have some links into osteoporosis, but it's still very early on. For, for that to be happening. Certainly, there's it, one wonders with the involvement of the endocannabinoid system and parts of the inflammatory cascade, whether or not there might be a role for cannabis in certain pain conditions, particularly endometriosis, vulvodynia, and painful bladder. But again, we don't have a lot to actually support this clinically other than, than theoretical postulates about whether or not this might be another road for, uh, for investigation. There's a lot of chatter out there uh, amongst women who do report benefits from, um, from cannabis use for a number of conditions. But again, it's a challenge as a clinician because there's not a lot of actual evidence that is supporting this in terms of moving forward with it as a practice or clinical recommendation. And what about pregnancy? We know that women continue to use cannabis during pregnancy, often perceive no general or pregnancy-specific risk compared to non-users. So we, we know some, but we don't know everything. We know that uh, cannabis use during pregnancy is increasing, and we know that women who continue to use cannabis during pregnancy often think that, um, uh, that there's no risk uh, in general or there's no pregnancy-specific risk compared to, to non-users. And it's really hard, again, the literature evaluating maternal and fetal outcomes have been limited by methodology, um, the lack of rigor, small numbers, lack of information on timing and dose, and, of course, a heavy reliance on self-reports, as well as other confounders and challenges to actually with variable outcome measures. So there's not a lot of data to support the safety of cannabis use during pregnancy. And I think that's an important, um, uh, an important phrasing of this, that there is insufficient data to support the safety of cannabis use in pregnancy. There's a well-known study out of Colorado where they surveyed dispensaries in a very large number recommending pregnant women use cannabis for nausea and vomiting. And when asked about their evidence... Much of it was from personal use. What about cannabis for nausea and vomiting in pregnancy? That's a great question. There are um, self-reports of cannabis being effective for nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. But again, there's no data to actually support these claims. And in fact, um, pre-pregnancy use of cannabis can actually be associated with more frequent nausea in pregnancy. In addition, there's actually something called cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, which is episodes of diffuse abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting that can last 24 to 48 hours and um, is a complication of chronic cannabis use. 
Um, and in fact, one of the things that we now need to be mindful of as we work with women who are pregnant and who are reporting hyperemesis gravidarum is to make certain that we are not mistaking cannabis hyperemesis syndrome with actually hyperemesis gravidarum. Yeah, we've certainly seen cases of this uh, cyclical vomiting syndrome or hyperemesis syndrome associated with cannabis, uh, and uh, it's, it's not as infrequent as, as you would think. What about effects of cannabis on the developing fetus? So we're learning more and more about this. Um, we know that cannabis exposure does negatively affect the fetus. Um, in the last few years, there's been a lot of research to help us better understand what those implications are. So we now have some good results from some, some good studies that show that prenatal cannabis use is associated with adverse growth outcomes, small versus gestational age, for instance, as well as more, more spontaneous preterm birth and admission to neonatal intensive care units. Certainly, we know that there are some long-term, longitudinal clinical studies that have shown that prenatal cannabis exposure can increase the risk of certain neurobehavioral abnormalities, such as cognitive impairments, hyperactivity, and altered emotionality. In addition, there are felt to be some epigenetic effects of prenatal and postnatal um, uh, cannabis exposure that, again, may be contributing to this development of the spectrum of neuropsychiatric disorders. And we see this actually as um, something that impacts uh, across uh, and has the potential to impact subsequent generations. Okay, this is going to show my naivete or lack of use. But when you purchase cannabis products, you can apparently get them with different amounts of THC or CBD. Do we know if there's any difference in the fetal effects or the use in nausea and vomiting if we compare THC or CBD? Certainly, there's. Uh, if one looks at the cannabis literature, there's much more out there at present time around THC. It's been studied a lot more um, in uh, than than CBD has. What we do know is that um, there does appear, in terms of fetal effects, to be a dose response relationship between uh, the percentage of THC exposure and the developmental effect. So again, if one were to employ a harm reduction strategy with women, both pregnant and non-pregnant, reducing the percentage of THC would again seem to be uh, an effective way of addressing the potential risks that could be associated with THC. We clearly have a lot to learn about cannabis and its effects on women, as well as harms and, and benefits for health despite the fact that people have been enjoying cannabis for centuries. Do you have any advice for listeners? There are probably two real take-home messages that we can right now give to women and understanding that we desperately need more research looking in this field. Certainly given the current evidence, uh, women should be advised to abstain from cannabis while pregnant or breastfeeding. However, if women are unable to abstain, women should be encouraged to reduce their cannabis use to the lowest possible amount while pregnant or breastfeeding. And there's actually no evidence right now to support the use of cannabis for nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. Thank you, Lisa, very much for uh, joining us and taking the time. I want to thank our guest and those involved in producing this podcast. If you have any suggestions for topics or people we should speak with, please contact the SOGC directly. Until the next time, I'm Graham Smith. Be safe. Music